Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. True owners, custodians and caretakers of this land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Today's episode of Queer in the Air was produced and recorded in a substitute workspace in my home in Nam, Melbourne, as a result of stage 4 COVID-19 physical distancing measures that are in place in metropolitan Melbourne. And like most communities, 3CR staff, programmers and volunteers are working remotely and producing the shows from home, on the phone, via online platforms or other creative methods. But we are still here giving you up-to-date, radical, alternative and critically engaged content 24-7 during this time. You're listening to Queer in the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest on the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA plus spectrum. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queer in the Air and listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. My name is MV. Please be aware that today's episode contains descriptions and discussions of discrimination towards queer people, othering, Islamophobia, sex and religion. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 via SMS on 0477 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. On today's episode of Queer in the Air, you'll hear a conversation that Naveen Abdullahi and I had earlier this week. Naveen is a queer Muslim woman of colour, a politically charged DJ and musician who spans genres and moods in her stylings, and she's also a good friend of almost 15 years. We speak about Naveen's queer history and journey, and look at her history through the lens of intersectionality and disidentification. We also begin to unpack conversations on decolonizing information and education in the context of queer history and what that means in broad definitions for people in LGBTIQA communities. As a disclaimer, this conversation by no means answers all areas of this topic in any definitive form, but it is the beginning of ongoing discussions on the complexity of queer identities that exist within a colonial, patriarchal and capitalist system that continues to dominate marginalised groups that Naveen and I will continue to research and discuss. Here is the first part of our conversation. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am 
digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So I was born in May of 1980 on Gadigal land, the first child of Egyptian migrants. My maternal grandparents and their children followed my uncle to so-called Australia. He was fleeing from conscription into the Egyptian army. Uh, my parents met whilst both studying pharmacy at Alexandria University. My earliest memories are of living above the pharmacy my mother owned in Dulwich Hill, um, of spending a lot of time with my dear maternal grandmother who lived with us at the time whilst my parents worked. My grandmother taught me to speak Arabic before I learned English. My parents strived hard to provide the best opportunities for us. Uh, we were quite middle class. Um, my, my younger brother and I were sent to elite private schools from kindergarten. We had swimming lessons. I was sent to ballet and taught the piano, which I was miserable about on both counts. And my brother did karate and soccer, of which I was totally jealous. Although my parents were quite progressive Muslim Egyptians in ways, my mother who had never worn a hijab was the breadwinner and business owner. And my father took on some traditionally female roles. My upbringing was uh, extremely gendered and religious to an extent. Uh, I was a tomboy from a young age much to my mother's dismay. I remember many years later leaving home to go to girls' night at the Bank Hotel and my mother crying at the way that I was dressed. Bond singlet, camo pants, dock boots, bomber jacket and bandana. My parents were sold the notion that Australia was and still is the lucky country. They felt as though they should try to fit in to participate in the society. Classism in Egypt is rife and the norm. Um, colonial views are respected over there and these values migrated with them. These political and social views are the antithesis of how I felt internally from a very young age. I've always believed in and hoped for an egalitarian world. Thus a sense of confusion, disorientation and dissonance grew within me. I'm sure unbeknownst to me for a very long time. Another of my earliest memories is of sitting in my babysitter's lap and telling her that I wanted to squeeze her so hard until her veins burst. I must have been around four years old and I remember feeling attracted to her. I have memories of being sexually explorative with other young girls from the age of five or so, but also having a sense that it should be kept a secret. In year four, a kid from school called me a lesbian. I went home and asked my mother what that was. Her reaction was total horror. This was a defining moment for me. I began to hide parts of myself, to fragment and only show what I thought I wouldn't get in trouble for. In year five, something wonderful happened. Under the direction of Karen Carey, who became the protagonist of an award-winning documentary in 2012, all students at my school were to learn an instrument. We had a variety demonstrated to us, violin, flute, clarinet, etc. When they came to the trumpet, it was love at first sight and sound. To my parents' dismay, I brought home the horn and tormented them in my neighbourhood as I was learning. Mrs. Carey told my parents that I had a talent and urged them to allow me to, to continue lessons. Um, they agreed and music became my sanctuary. I wasn't particularly interested in the limited amount of socialising I was allowed by my authoritarian parents, opting to stay in my room, playing and listening to music and reading the Chambers 20th Century Dictionary, which I still own today. I went on to play throughout high school, joining all of the orchestras and bands I could. The music department at MLC really got me through my high school years. I yearned to become a professional musician, but my parents weren't supportive and I was pushed into pharmacy with the ultimate goal being my takeover of the family business. I owe a great part of my musical career to the passion and kindness of Karen Carey. 
in year seven, I made a new best friend. She was defiant and queer um, and out at an all girls Christian private school. She gave me strength and I lived vicariously through her whilst becoming more and more immersed in Islam as a way of cleansing the shame I felt about my queer feelings. In second year uni, I was brought to the queer collective by an old friend from high school. It took some time for my brain to comprehend that people could be so free. I had my first relationships with women and then my second partner broke with me because I wasn't out to my parents. I got mad about it and I came out and it wasn't received well at all. And in fact, it was an extremely traumatic event for both my, uh, both my parents and myself. It wasn't too long before my next partner helped me move out of home. My second degree was a Bachelor of Pharmacy. Uh, for a long time, I told myself that I'd done that to make up for being gay. It didn't work, by the way. My parents have spent um, the majority of my life denying my queerness till this day. What I found upon leaving my family home in the late 90s was a new sense of family and community. I experienced unconditional love. I found space to express myself. When I say queer, I don't mean LGBT. I mean humans who encompass all of the identities in between all of the letters. I mean a rejection of heteronormative categories, a political way of being, a degree of anarchy. I mean decolonizing. I mean resisting the status quo and constantly questioning. Not that I could digest all of that for many years. When I discovered the queer scene, it was a game changer. Not that queers are without their own set of issues, but I've never felt more understood. And what social activity is more queer than going to the club? <laughs> we would dance and party all night. We took drugs, we laughed, we cried, we hooked up, we got messy and connected ferociously. Loose ends, bad dog and club kooky became our holy trinity. And shout out to loose end Sunday service of which both you and I were devotees, MV. My activism began in my early uni days. I had no idea about politics. Um, it was more humanitarian issues that got me involved, like free the refugees, then reclaim the night. I really shunned politics for far too long, um, not seeing anything inspiring and choosing to be apolitical, read privileged. It was one of my mentors much later in life, Stephen Hawkins, who set off a light bulb moment for me in 2012. He invited me over to his place to hang out and talk music and life. He talked about DJing on Oxford Street in Sydney in the 80s of his dear friend and collaborator, Robert Rasick, and how we had lost an entire generation of artists and activists to AIDS. He told me that my generation were complacent. He said, girly, one day you're going to wake up and all of your rights will be gone. It's already started and you don't even know. Then I met Candy Royale and we quickly became friends and collaborators. Candy was an intensely political figure. But more than that, she was my sister. She made me a better person. She influenced my political and personal growth markedly till her death and beyond. My music career began with me playing trumpet for various bands from folk to rock to jazz to punk, etc. In 2011, with no previous DJ experience, but due to my musical background, I was approached to DJ a new queer R&B and hip hop event because I looked the part. I did three gigs with them and realized that what they really wanted was shitty top 40 with no mu real music or finesse. So I left. People like Ben Drayton showed me such kindness and support early on, mentoring me and giving me some of my first gigs, as did Matt Vaughan of Loose Ends. I then met Campbell Drummond, who would become my collaborator and accomplice for years, co-promoting Semi-Detached. I would go on to play most queer events in Warung, have a four-year residency at the Bearded Tit, co-produce events with Candy Royale, Betty Grumble and Charlie Billis, 
I've played festivals and toured interstate and internationally. At the end of 2018, I moved to Nam to purposely change my life and to follow love. I decided that I'd no longer participate in the rat race of capitalism, whereby my main gig as a clinical pharmacist was taking up too much energy. I wanted to make space for learning and creative endeavors to fully realize my dream of being an artist. Since moving here, my main work up until COVID-19 has been with music. I collaborate with Indicia and Claddy, two multi-talented artists. I find the art scene down here quite exciting. Naveen, thank you for so much detail about your upbringing and your queer story. I can understand and hear the struggle that you had experienced as a young queer person, especially in your upbringing. And it's so wonderful to hear the fact that moving to Melbourne has sort of spiked this more political sense of being more self-aware of yourself and being more socially and politically active. It's, it's incredible and I'm so excited that you're hearing numb with me as well. I'd like to change gears a little bit and unpack these ideas a little bit more. And when we think of the term intersectionality, this was a term that was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. And this was to describe how race, class, gender and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. And how this relates to systems of structure, of oppression, of domination and discrimination. I'd like for you to describe how growing up for you sort of embodied these ideas and and how it relates back to your intersections. Yeah, so um, I feel like in my little blurb just before, I I did, um, I guess, in a non-direct way, sort of cover uh, what it was like growing up with all of those intersections. I think what I did unknowingly was compartmentalise, like my brain could not cope with all my entire reality at the same time. And definitely not when I, I didn't have much language around the things that I was feeling, you know, and, and being brought up to assimilate was very real. Um, that was definitely, I guess, what my, what my parents encouraged me to do. So yeah, the, the intersections were quite jarring. It was all quite jarring. And I think that I, that I switched off parts of myself um, to suit different situations um, and, and became a chameleon of sorts, which actually is quite detrimental <laughs> to a person, I believe. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You said that you felt somewhat removed from your identities so when you felt that do you feel that there was a sense of othering even within your own community and within your own household which for many people a household is supposed to be a place of safety a place of comfort and feel all that emotion and love is that something that you experienced yourself unfortunately i my family home uh was and still is quite an unsafe place for me um and you know my parents are wonderful people um and it's not you know I don't I don't blame them I don't have ill feelings towards them I think what I have is compassion um because I don't believe that their um rejection of parts of me that they can't understand is um, is because they don't love me. I think they love me in the best way that they can. Um, however, unfortunately, cultural 
and I believe it to be more cultural than religious, and I'll go into talking about that later on, but I think cultural, like a cultural dissonance um, and a generational gap as well, and also them being, you know, yeah, you know, first generation in this country, like all of those factors has meant that I think they're confused themselves and, you know, going through all these questions and, and, and thinking about this material, there is a great deal of disorientation that comes along with all of this and has existed for a long time for me um, because I haven't been able to reconcile my entire being um, with itself. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a strange, <laughs> it's a strange experience. <laughs> and that brings me on to the next topic that I wanted to discuss in relation to identity. I'd like to unpack the theory of disidentification in relation to your identities and whether you have ever experienced disidentification or how disidentification has affected people in your communities. And to put a definition out there, disidentification examines how minority subjects or groups negotiate identity in a majoritarian kind of world that punishes and attempts to erase the existence of those who do not fit that normative structure or subject. Can we discuss how disidentification has been a thing for you? So potentially the greatest source of tension in my life has come from feeling split between my cultural and religious upbringing and my queer identity. I don't even think that I disidentified with Islam because my understanding is that you are um, identifying with certain parts and sort of just um, rejecting other parts to suit your narrative. I didn't even see that as an option. It was either, I was either Muslim or I wasn't. Um, and I got to the point in my mid to late 20s where I had completely rejected it. It's only over the last decade or so where I've learned of things such as queer imams and clerics um, and met practicing Muslims who are also queer. I don't know much about this stuff, but I'm curious to learn and interact more with these groups of people and to potentially reclaim that identity for myself. I mean, as an aside, I don't really think that Islam is as homophobic as the world would like to believe as well. Like, not especially more than Christianity or other, you know, major religions. Um, I think that over the years, it's become an obsession of the Western media to demonise Muslims. And it is just a fact that some devout people believe that religious texts should be taken literally. And the, or the orthodox adherence um, such as this spans all religions. It's not specific to Islam. So I just want to clarify that Islam is not a particularly homophobic religion. I think that religion itself has that context. But uh, having said that, I can't emphasize too much the trauma of feeling like you can't cohabit your identities concurrently. Um, the feeling that you must fragment and compartmentalize has caused me and my loved ones a great deal of hurt. Um, at times I've shrunk my Arab ethnicity and culture to fit in better. I grew up being uh, constantly exoticized to the point where it actually made me feel special. Um, it's been disorientating to learn that this is a form of racism and to look back on the past through a different lens and see things that I was really oblivious to at the time. The other thing I've disidentified with is being a lesbian. And that was an identity I took on when my queer vocabulary was in its infancy. Um, like I said earlier, I was a tomboy, but when I began to femme up in my 20s, the lesbians told me that I'd turn straight. 
And I found it shocking that I could be booted out of the club for expressing my feminine energy. And then the other thing is that I have a dysphoria around identifying as so-called Australian. Um, I have a shame around participating in a society built on the genocide of its first people. And to further unpack this idea of disidentification and who gets to tell our stories, in preparation for this conversation, I sent you an article called Disidentification is Bliss, written by Carl Peterson in 2017. And the article discusses how some queer Muslims assess themselves and their standing within the larger Muslim community as a whole. What were your thoughts on the article? Look, the thing is, is that I think it just got, it, it got me prickly from the beginning. The fact that, and, and this completely may be my faux pas, but I read the author as being white. And for them to be, start off the article talking about Islam being a particularly homophobic religion, I just immediately, it just really kind of, I just, I just got prickly. You know, I guess there were definitely points in it that I agreed with and that were valid. The thing that I want to see, and, and maybe this is just me being idealistic, is I want Muslim people to write articles about Muslim people. I want black people to write articles about black people. I want, you know, I want people of their own culture to be ideally making that commentary. I think that, and, and it's just especially agitating, de I'm definitely talking about this more, but it's especially agitating when white people make commentaries on other cultures that they're not part of. Absolutely, and that's a feeling that I got as well. It was interesting though, some of the stories that were in there and I kind of was like, sure, okay, I get that, you know, that disidentifying with yourself and, and shaping your own personal story and narrative and your relationship to Islam and reconciling your own sexual identity and gender identity. But absolutely, these stories need to be told by and for the people that they are written for. To wrap up this part of the conversation, Naveen, I wanted to talk about your music and your DJing as part of your identity and what important conversations and discussions have been included in the way that you create, play, and you compose your playlist? Yeah, I mean, music is a massive part of my identity. Uh, it's a spiritual thing. Um, DJing's at subsection of that as he's playing the horn. Uh, music can make or break a mood, transport you back and forth in time. Um, it can be of solace or it can be actual torture. <laughs> um, and I love all of that. Um, it evokes emotion. And when I play music, that's what I'm always trying to do. My taste is super eclectic and I like to represent that. Um, I love incorporating historical events, and sound effects and things that inspire me. I love the element of surprise. Uh, and so I'm quite interested in sampling and nostalgia. Um, I've realized the power that I have um, to use this art as a platform for education and awareness. Um, I enjoy playing sets exclusively comprised of black or indigenous or queer or non-male artists. And often I'm working with the art of people who encompass many of those intersections. My ultimate goal is to amplify their voices and their stories. It's also important for me to center local art too. Um, all of those acts I see as political acts. Um, over the years, I've become more and more politicised, which is a reflection on the world we live in, 
um, and the lack of safety I feel within it and the sense of urgency with which I feel like there needs to be calls for change. You've just listened to the first part of a conversation between Naveen and I, where we discussed her queer history and story and her upbringing with a focus on intersectionality and the theory of disidentification and how that relates to her queer identity. In the second part of our conversation, we begin to unpack discussions on decolonizing information and education in the context of queer history. But first, you hear the spoken word track Disjointed by Candy Royale, taken from the 2016 album Stories by Starlight. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. There is never a single story, though this is what is being told, there is never a single angle. I thought this truth to be ages old. Those who can't understand that a curtain has been drawn must not see those lies which are obvious to us, the last bastions of humanity. This curtain is one of iron through which we must peep. We are eyes which should seek, too adept at tapping into vanities, irises expanding over fantasies with selective blinkers that help us glaze over the casualties. This is not so easy for me, for I was baptised, anointed in the ointment of at least half the world's hurting, my skin glistens with a moisture I cannot shake off. Well, like, like some wet Dog. So tell me, how can others see only in the form of the prescribed? I have been waiting for that catastrophe that would open people's closed eyes. And it came, way before those two towers imploded, then collapsed upon a city, sleeping on top of its jewels in the crown of all that is wrong with the Western superpower. And it went, forgotten like the lives lost in previous times where the same lies were used to sell stories about other powers committing some abuse. And it came, way before another Arab country was stormed, and it went, out with the racist jokes which have become the norm for those in whom hatred chokes. And like the shores of a sea being pounded daily, where it is so used to this sensation, it doesn't even realise the beating it is constantly receiving. We have become used to that rhythm of bloodshed, candidly declaring our support of whomever sheds the least is the better beast. Well... I, for one, cannot believe in this new reality, where better the devil you know and the lesser of two evils has become the status quo. And so, I recognise that I am a single finger, solitary and useless as a weapon, for I will not join four more to become a fist. I will not join four more to be one of the fists which punches air in victory, celebrating death our morbid victor. I am a single finger, not interested in joining the hand that would require it for a trigger. I am a single finger, only interested in joining four more to be one of the fists which 
which beats upon the breast of the mourner in empathy, mourning a grief so foreign to us so free. I am a single finger, only interested in joining the hand that would require it to wield the pen that pens these words in the hopes that you will see, for I wish not to use this finger to point accusingly and instead would like to be the finger which presses up against lips too quick to spit untruths against lives already broken, begging for thoughts to be reformed before being spoken. Yes, let it be known that this finger exists only to be pricked, to show you that the colour of my blood matches yours so you can see our life force is resplendent in its similarities. And yes, let it be known that this finger is directly connected to these feet which wish not to run in fear but dance to the drumbeat of freedom, tapping out a rhythm dissimilar to ammunition exploding but similar to artillery and arteries sending messages to a brain firing on all cylinders and unafraid to ask the important questions. Yes, let it be known that this finger will cross this heart and hope to die as I promise to all who hear this that I will never be tainted by those who know only how to hate. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. 
For LGBTQ people seeking asylum, the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers, they are on bridging visas. And it is really difficult to find employment on a bridging visa. A lot of LGBTQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. And so in situations before when they were able to work and had any specific medical needs, now there was no jobs anymore. People seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support and so for many that meant that they cannot meet their health needs at all. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. break into your phone if they have a reason to do so and what we end up with is a surveillance state what we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty the underlying tenet of western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty what we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt and that's not a legal framework that we agreed to your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is MV. During the break, you heard the spoken word track Disjointed by Candy Royale. You can find the track via Deezer.com. In the second part of today's show, Naveen and I have broad discussions on decolonizing information and education in the context of queer history what that means, and the determinants of our queer knowledge and narratives. Here is the second part of our conversation. So off air, when we discussed having this conversation, you came to me with various topics you wanted to address. And one of them was to focus on decolonizing information or education in the context of queer history. And to explain to our listeners, decolonization is a process of undoing colonizing practices or ideals. And so within the educational context, this means confronting and challenging the colonizing practices that have influenced education in the past and which are still present today. 
And the process of colonization leads to the erasure of our history. So it replaces it with one that centralizes white, cisgender, heterosexual men as a sole definition of what it means to be human. So Naveen, in your opinion, who owns our knowledge and narratives when we start to address when we start to address these conversations about undoing colonization practices, i.e. decolonization? As far as I'm concerned, the queer world is structured exactly like the real world. Only as a group, we are an oppressed peoples ourselves. Um, but being queer does not make you immune to white supremacy. It doesn't make you immune to homophobia or transphobia either. Um, the people who own our knowledge and narratives are the people who have colonised us, oppressed us and appropriated our stories. They're the ones who have erased and stolen our knowledge and drip fed back to us the information they want us to believe. So let's look at the coloniser. In 1533, Britain passed the Buggery Act, outlawing anal sex and bestiality. The fact that these two ideas are conflated indicates that the British considered queer people to be animals. In 1788, uh, the British colonised Australia and import their own legal system, including anti-homosexual laws. Ancient wisdom, ideas and practices have endured a genocide akin to that of the people. Troy Anthony Bayliss um, in 2014 argues that since European contact, Indigenous Australians have been stripped of their diverse and customary sexual and gendered practices through the imposition of a new social and cultural order. An expression of gender variations in pre-colonial times appears to have existed and at the very least, homosocial behaviours were documented by colonisers, but these stories have largely been silenced due to an exclusion in research and mainstream discourse. Um, I've really tried to focus on our history in this country, um, and honestly, it's been with little success. Um, it's worth mentioning that on nearly every continent, um, and for all of recorded history, thriving cultures have recognised, revered and integrated more than two genders. The police had a role in enforcing conformity in this context. In 1958, the police commissioner claimed that homosexuality was Australia's greatest menace. Reforms to these laws only really began in the 1980s, first with the decriminalisation of male acts of homosexuality. The fact that they only refer to the acts of males completely erases the existence of anyone else. Victoria only abolished the gay panic defence in 2005. Let that sink in. The law up until then said it was okay to kill us if a person felt threatened by our sexual advances. In 2013, the Gillard government amended the Sex Discrimination Act, making it unlawful to discriminate against us, but still had exemptions for religious institutions. Um, Maddie Clark, a Bundjalung queer and gender diverse writer, recounts an incident at the 2011 Melbourne Pride March in St Kilda, where they were amongst activists protesting the government's treatment of queer asylum seekers. They were asked to leave and they were met with a white cisgendered gay man shouting that they were too political. There also is little to none non-white representation in LGBTQI plus organisations to this day. Part of me is keen to reject all of these organisations and work on breakaway Black, Indigenous and POC organisations, but the actual right thing to do is to decolonise the current ones. 
And the very fact that queer people exist and that queer people are seen and that queer people are rallying and protesting and getting their voices out there, that itself is a political act. And on that, the next point that I wanted to discuss is talking about pre-colonial history. And this is something that has determined that queer fluidity was a norm prior to the arrival of settlers and colonizers. And that human relations were a lot more fluid were a lot more divine, communal and spiritual than that of your usual orthodox heteronormative relations that came to dominate human life throughout the Christianization process or the colonization processes of indigenous people and queer people. So let's discuss who determines our societal norms and our standards. Like, why does it still remain that our norms and that our standards are still dominated by those who benefit from ongoing settlement, colonisation of Indigenous people and queer identities, capitalism and so forth? Right, well, we live in a society where white people have become accustomed to speaking for Black, Indigenous and uh, POC peoples. Um, at this point, I'm not interested in hearing what white people have to say about black culture. I also don't care to hear what straight people have to say about queer culture. Our lived experience makes us our own experts on the matter and moving forward, if we are to decolonize information, it will be exclusively from the perspective of black, indigenous and POC peoples. As a nation, it's imperative that we acknowledge that unless we are First Nations peoples, we have benefited from colonization. We need to dedicate ourselves to dismantling the systems of oppression that maintain colonization under the guidance of and wholly based upon the wishes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples. And it's an ongoing process and it's a learning process. The, the learning curve is so steep for you and I and for everyone to be able to get to that place where we are in solidarity with our Indigenous brothers and sisters, and in particular for us, with our queer Indigenous brothers and sisters. It's such a vital process that I'm still learning from. It's, it's such an important and vital work. It doesn't, doesn't stop with these conversations that you and I are having. It needs to go beyond what we're having here right now. In my research for this conversation, I, I read two articles. One was Queer and Then by Michael Warner. The other was Against State Straightism by Tom Bolenstroff. And so it made me think that when we speak about the state, i.e. governments and lawmaking, that usually means a few things. So we've got stability, orderliness, good governance, but it is usually practiced by ignoring or silencing those who are, in quotes, who are ungovernable because of their anti-normativity. And so, in turn, that erases multifaceted and laid queer identities through colonising practices. How do you think that we can redefine state straightism against queer identities? Well, state straightism plays out as the reform of anti-LGBTQ plus laws in only recent history until right now. Why should we be appealing to the wider society to validate the fact that we deserve the same rights and protections? Um, I am concerned that too many LGBT people thought that the fight was over when marriage equality was won. Uh, that was 
a white and a heteronormative fight. And I don't say this to take away from the many lives made better by this. I'm simply saying that we can't stop there. There is still so much fighting to do for populations invisible to mainstream lesbian and gay culture. And why do you think that it is only a select few that have the unwarranted power to think and create knowledge and thus recreate history and in particular queer history? And this is my example that I want to give. We have the erasure of Marsha P. Johnson, a transgender woman of colour, that in oral history, mainstream media and films, her stance has been one of the first people to resist police intimidation during the Stonewall uprising and rioting of 1969 has either been erased or basically given a backseat to white cis gay men. I mean, our teachings, our histories and the creation and existence of identities has to go beyond elite white men. What's your comment on that? Yeah, uh, it's put simply, I, I agree, definitely. I feel like those voices have had more than enough airtime. Um, I don't feel like there's anything new to be learnt from those narratives at all. I, I'm i going to quote um, a, the, a Guardian article, actually, that you sent to me <laughs> on decolonising curriculum. It was talking specifically about um, students who had requested that an English university um, broaden their readings to to decolonise the information that the students were receiving. Um, And this was met with backlash by the institution. Uh, And it says, to decolonise and not just diversify curriculums is to recognise that knowledge is inevitably marked by power relations. In a society still shaped by a long colonial history in which straight, white, upper-class men are at the top of the social order, most disciplines give disproportionate prominence to these experiences, concerns and achievements of this one group. A decolonised curriculum would bring questions of class, caste, race, gender, ability and sexuality into dialogue with each other instead of pretending that there's some kind of generic identity that we all share. So decolonization not only means to consume material from oppressed voices, but to also consider what traditional texts omit, distort and flat out lie about, as in what, what's in the silence. Um, the fact that Hollywood would dare in 2015 recount the story of Stonewall, but completely whitewash it, turning the protagonists from black and Latino trans women, from black lesbians and sex workers to white males in my opinion, is an act of violence. This phenomenon has global relevance and permeates all cultures with a colonial history. We deserve to know our history. We can't know ourselves or fully harness our power until we understand our roots. The heroes who pave the way deserve to be recognised. Absolutely. And the reality is that it's of great concern, like with the rise of these conservative values in the global system, it's so imperative that these conversations around social change and around identity and decolonization centralise, obviously, the voices of those most marginalised within our society and within the LGBTIQA plus community. And these are the voices that need to be uplifted. And And that change starts with decolonization and that reclamation of history of our knowledge systems, of our collective voices, our collective identities, and really pushing back against that white cisgender male patriarchy narrative that we've lived for such a long time. 
And so on that, any last thoughts on this conversation that we've been having? I think the take home point on um, decolonizing queer history is that just because you can't easily access the information doesn't mean that there isn't history there. Um, there was uh, a purposeful cleansing of history to subscribe to um, religion, to subscribe to colonialism um, and, and other oppressive factors. So just because you can't easily find that information, it doesn't mean that it never happened. And I think that we need to remember that. And I think that we need to dig deeper and we need to ask more questions and we need to really kind of mute those loud voices that have dominated history and elevate and enable the voices that have been suppressed because that's where our learning is. That's, that's where we're gonna learn and that's where we're gonna grow and we're gonna evolve. That's the only way. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Naveen Abdullahi for joining me on Queer in the Year as a co-host. And I look forward to continuing these conversations with Naveen, where we unpack and draw attention to topics that analyze the normative frameworks that continue to erase queer identities, history, and commentaries. The discussion on decolonizing information and education in the context of queer history is an ongoing discussion. And neither of us can say we have all the answers and insight into this nuanced and complex discussion. The process of undoing colonizing practices and ideals and learning about what that means is an ongoing steep learning curve and warrants our continual interest in dismantling structures that oppress, restrict and discriminate. Naveen and I centered our conversation based on numerous readings and articles. Some of the readings are Decolonizing Queer Time, a critique of anachronism in Latin writings by Eliana de Souza Avila. Everyday Decolonization, Living a Decolonizing Queer Politics by Sarah Hunt. Against State Straitism, Five Principles for Including LGBT Indonesians by Tom Berlenstorff. Queer and Then by Michael Warner. Decolonizing and Queering Praxis, The Unanswerable Questions for Queer Asia by Pohan Lee. The Intersectionality Wars by Jane Coaston. Australia's Queer History by Robert French. Yes, we must decolonize. Our teaching has to go beyond elite white men by Priyam Vada Gopal. The Art of Seeing Aboriginal Australia's Queer Potential by Troy Anthony Bayliss. And There Is No Hierarchy of Oppression by Audrey Lord. Links to these resources will be placed on Queer in the Air's webpage show notes later today and by the podcast version of today's show. If the content in today's show was a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 via SMS on 0477 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. If you have questions, comments, or complaints about today's program, contact us via queerintheair at gmail.com and listen to our collection of podcasts and to today's program on demand for up to a week after initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash queerintheair. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle queerintheair. Up next is Arabic music program Salam Radio Show. To take us out is Aretha Franklin's A Deeper Love, remixed by 60 Feet Deep. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.